0: Hmm. Well, in this uh, series that we're in, going through the book of Acts, we're in Acts chapter 19, and so if you have a Bible and brought one with you, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 19 and follow along with us there, um, I, was, I was thinking about, th- there's, a, there's a lot in, in chapter 19 that you could talk about. Um, I'm going to talk about probably four verses in the whole chapter. There's, there's a lot There's a lot there we could dive into, but uh, we don't have the time to deal with all of it, so I encourage you to read it on your own and and do some study on your own, and uh, if you have questions, um, ask somebody else. Uh, Just kidding. Just kidding. I I was thinking about it, though, and I thought, you know, as a a football coach, I, I love to have a full roster. I love to have a full roster. I love when when the when the when the sidelines are full of kids uh, who are excited about the game of football, excited about the team that we have. It feels like that you got when you got a lot of kids on on the sidelines, you got momentum, um, energy. You know what I'm saying? It's it's and we and we've had we've had, at at our at our, at our level here. We've had we've had full roster seasons, and we've had seasons where. <laughs> I mean, Joanne, I coached with your husband for a long time. He's coached out here a long time, and he knows all <laughs> real lean seasons. Um, and it's, it's not that necessarily one seems better than the others. just is, there's, You know what it's like. You've got a bunch of people around. It's generally more fun. And I love having a full season, but at the same time, as a football coach, there are times, even when the roster's full, It's frustrating when those people on the roster just want to wear the jersey. Uh, And when they don't have, when they choose not to contribute, uh, they'd rather just stand on the sidelines and watch everybody else do their thing. When they're given the chance, they kind of stay in the shadows. That's frustrating. And, And as I was looking at the book of Acts, especially chapter 19, It gives me a picture of disciples who are all in, who do a lot more than just wear the jersey. It gives me a picture of disciples who aren't content sitting on the sidelines watching other people. Do you know what I'm saying? If we understand the frustration of jersey wearers in the world of athletics, We ought to be able to understand it in a world of faith. Now, we're not given commands in the book of Acts. Like in the Gospels, Jesus often says, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you, and we have commands there, certainly all through the Old Testament. In the book of Acts, we're not really given any commands. There's nowhere in the book of Acts that says disciples must dot, dot, dot. Um, but it does give us plenty of examples of what disciples do. And because the examples we have in the book of Acts of what disciples do, because their examples made the cut of making the Bible, uh, their examples pretty much set the standard for us. And in Acts 19, we see quite the standard that's set for people who call themselves disciples of Jesus. And so while it doesn't say, if you're a disciple, you must, it doesn't say that, but because we see what discipleship looks like in them, we draw the conclusion that this is a standard for us. Does that make sense? You follow me? And so let me be clear about this point right up front. That one can be a Christian and have their eternity completely secured in Christ. What that means is, is that I've acknowledged the state of my sin and that there's a separation between me and the Father, and that separation is repaired through my faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. So, so, so one can be a Christian and have their eternity secure, but not live as a disciple of Jesus. See, we're saved by faith alone, not by works. The Bible's very clear about that. Ephesians 2:8 and 9, we're saved by faith, not of works. It's the gift of God. It's his grace that saved us through faith. It's a gift of God not by words that nobody can boast. And and, and so while salvation is a matter of faith, discipleship is a matter of of living. It's a way of life. And in Acts 19, we have a framework of marks of a disciple. There are two instances in Acts 19 that I want to use as a template for our lives. Verses nine and ten, and then verses eighteen and nineteen. And like I said, there's a there's a lot there. There's a real there's a real kind of funny slash sad story in uh, in verses thirteen through I don't know seventeen or so. And, and I might I might address it just kind of as we go by it because it's 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 pretty humorous, but it's pretty sad at the same time. But but I want to use the, these two these two sections of two verses eight and nine or sorry nine and ten and eighteen and nineteen as a template. Now, Acts 19, coming right after Acts 18. In Acts 18, Paul was in, in Corinth for about a year and a half. And up to that point, that was a, pretty much the longest time he had spent in any one area as he went through his missionary journeys. He had three of them in all. Corinth was during his second missionary journey I to Ephesus, where he'll be in, in Acts 19 is his, his third. But in Acts 19, he, he moves from Corinth to Ephesus, And he spends three years in Ephesus, twice as long as he spent in Corinth. And so there was something about this season for Paul in Ephesus that was very, very significant. There was something about the disciples there. There was something about what God was doing there. And in Ephesus, a church started. It was a great church. Paul loved this church, loved the people there. They loved him. They had great love for God, great love for each other. And it was full of committed disciples. And so it's a great template for us. And and, and it's actually, uh, in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we see, in essence, Jesus writing a letter to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And Ephesus is one of the churches Jesus talks to. And so it has this long history of, 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 of kingdom stuff long-history disciples. And so in Acts 19, we see the beginnings of this this incredible church, the church of Ephesus. And I just want to read verses 8 and 9 just real quick. So this is, he goes to Ephesus, and verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. Now, let me just stop right there. This was Paul's normal course of doing things. He'd go into a city, he'd go into a synagogue where the Jewish people would meet, and he would talk to them about uh, their belief, about their faith, and point, try to point out and reason with them from their scriptures, what we understand as the Old Testament, how what they were looking for in the Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus. This is, this is what he did. He did this everywhere he went. And usually, out of those conversations, people would believe, and then they would start a church. And so this is what he's doing. This is the normal way of what he does. It. But watch what happens. The end of verse 9 and verse 10. So, so they, they, they start fighting with him, and they're maligning and him, and, and, and the people who are believing. He says, so Paul left them, and watch what he does. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And so he leaves the synagogue, and next, and he finds this, this, this teaching hall. Basically, it was, a, it was a schoolhouse, if you will, that he rents from this guy named Tyrannus, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So he, he rents that out. And for two years, he spends time in this lecture hall talking about Jesus. Here's why I think this is significant for us. In this day and age, the, the regular schedule of, of, of their life will look like this. The men would get up and go to work at about 5 o'clock in the morning. And they would work hard till about noon. So they go to work five or six in the morning and work out about noon. And at noon, they would take a break and they would go have lunch, have some wine, take a nap, and they would have off from about noon till five or six in the evening. And then at five or six in the evening, they would go back to work and work till about nine or ten. So they had this section in the middle of their day where they just, they just recharged, they re- rejuvenated themselves, so they relaxed. And one of the reasons they did it is because it was so hot and they didn't have air conditioning. And so they would work early in the morning until it got hot. Then they would take all the heat of the day off and just kind of chill and and then go back to work at night. The reason why this is so interesting is that Paul, as a tent maker, followed the same schedule. He'd get up early in the morning and work till about noon. And when the custom was to take some time off, have some downtime, relax, enjoy life, he would then go to the hall of Tyrannus and teach from noon until five or six, and then he would go back to work from six till nine or 10, every day for two years. I think that's significant. When others were resting... Paul was working. When most were clamoring for time off and my own personal downtime and self-care, taking this day and this afternoon and this weekend off because we got this and that and the other, Paul used all those free moments for kingdom building it was tireless tireless energy and tireless passion for the kingdom and it was so counter to the way everybody else worked their schedules because there was a tireless commitment it reminds me of what paul will say in romans 12 Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Do you understand why he says it? Because this is what he lived. This this was his heartbeat. He, 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 He could have rightfully taken all kinds of time off. After all, he had already done his duty in church, right? He had already served for years and years and years. And he says, don't you ever be lacking in zeal. You keep your spiritual fervor doing what? Serving. Now, now, now believe me, I believe in the importance of a balanced life. Please don't misunderstand me. It has been said, if you burn the candle at both ends, you're not as bright as you think you are. So I understand the need and value of a balanced life. But I think we would all agree that we all fill our schedules with plenty of things that are not kingdom related. And most of us value our time off more than we value serving. Paul was wise. He didn't kill himself with activity. He obeyed the examples of Sabbath rest. But there was a tireless service to the kingdom of God. And you think, what was it about Paul that made him so relentless in his serving? Well, honestly, if I had to guess, I think it's because he knows what he used to be. He knows how committed he could be to other things, because he was. He knows what a type A driven personality he was. And he knows that all of that energy and that passion and that zeal was to things other than the kingdom. And so when God got a hold of his life, and as Paul realized what God had saved him from, what other response could he have? I mean, when you think about us, many of us, Have absolutely invested so much time and energy in our job, our vocation, our career, building for our future, our hobbies. We're not unlike Paul at all. It's just when Paul was bought back by God, he realized all this energy I've been spending, and all these other things needs to be transferred to kingdom stuff. And so he was tireless in his work and service for the kingdom. Not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. And that's one of the things I love about this church. There are so many people here who are tireless in their service of God through this church. Time after time, week after week, year after year, consistent and faithful. I want to say thank you. But if this is the standard of discipleship, and again, it doesn't say anywhere in Acts, you must be, it doesn't say that. But it gives us templates. And if this is part of the template of what it means to be a disciple, we must consider how tirelessly we serve the kingdom. If we're gonna call ourselves a disciple. it's a big if it doesn't mean that we serve every weekend hour it doesn't even mean you know that it's every single weekend it doesn't even mean that it's all 12 months out of the year there's none of that guilt stuff but it does mean something and it does mean serving somewhere and it does mean serving someone somehow And so I thought of saying it like this see how this feels to you. Huh. Serving is not something that Christians do, but it is something that disciples do. And there's a difference, oftentimes. A lot of people are Christian, they believe in Jesus for their salvation. If they die, they're going to heaven. But that's different than being a disciple. A disciple serves regularly, consistently, passionately, tirelessly. I mean, even Jesus. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? But to serve. Give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came. And so as I was looking through this, I thought, you know, if I'm going to call myself a Christian, I have to consider how is my discipleship going? And one of the litmus tests of discipleship is my service. Does this make sense? And so now, if you choose, you get to ask yourself the same question. How's your discipleship going? How's that service thing going? If if you read through Acts 19, you come to these few verses, verses 13 through 17, and, and I didn't know if I was going to say anything about it. It's just kind of funny. I just might point it out. There were some Jews who were supposedly driving out evil spirits, and they didn't know Jesus, but they knew Paul. And they knew Paul used the name of Jesus in casting out demons. And and, uh, seven of these fellas, their daddy's name was Sceva. He was a Jewish priest. And they came to this one guy who was possessed by a demon. And they said, "In in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of this man. They didn't even know who Jesus was themselves, but they're using his name. And the demon responds. This is pretty funny. Verse 15. The demon talks back to him. It says, Jesus I know, Paul I know about. Who in the world are you? (laughs) And it says this old guy beat the living Pope out of these seven fellas, beat them naked and bloodied them up and sent them out running. I just think it's funny. Like if you wanna pose about Jesus, it's gonna come back and bite you in the butt. You know what I'm saying? Like... You don't throw that name around lightly. And I love the fact that the demon says, Jesus, we know. And we know about Paul. It's interesting. They didn't say we knew, we know Paul. As, 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 as what an incredible figure in God's kingdom Paul was, the demons knew about him, but they didn't know him. Jesus, they knew. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? I mean, I could go on to the whole big thing of how demons know Jesus. They used to you know, worship him in heaven before they fell. And they shudder at his name. So Jesus, we know. Paul, we've heard about. You? And I wonder how many, <laughs> if it were us, if that would be the same response that the devil would have it be about us. <laughs> Carl? Who the heck is that? Uh, on one hand, I think it would be I don't know if it's pride or arrogance. I, I, I think it would be really, really cool for the devil to know my name. No, nah, forgive me, Lord. I don't want to, like, don't, don't, don't test me on that, and I'm fine if he doesn't know me. That's, you know, I don't want I don't know, It's just an interesting little passage. I'm going to leave it alone. I, I need to get on to some other stuff. But, but look at verses 18 and 19. And, and so Paul, Paul's having this incredible ministry in Ephesus, Um, All these people start coming uh, coming to faith. In verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number uh, who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to about 50,000 drachmas. If you're following along on the computer back there, go ahead and click those slides along with me there. We're in verses uh, 18 and uh, 18 and, and, and 19, two of the marks of, the, of, of discipleship, okay, other than serving that we've already seen. In the two marks of discipleship, here, now get this, confession of sin and sacrifice. Okay, confession of sin and sacrifice. Again, it's not commended, you must dot, 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 but using this as a template, this is what we see. These who come to faith, they confess what they were, their evil deeds, what they're doing, and then they burn all this stuff. So, So here's the first thing we have to realize, that confession always leads to transformation. Confession always leads to transformation. To confess sin means that the individual confesses that they are a sinner, that we've not lived up to God's standard. The Bible calls that sin. All through Scripture. Each of us like sheep have gone our own way. We each turned our own way. The problem is that our sins cut us off from God. And to confess sin means that we agree with God about sin and about who we are and the consequences of sin and that we're in need of being saved from those consequences. And so the the first mark of a disciple is one who confesses sin. God, I have sinned against you and your word and your will. I've gone my own way. I've done my own thing. I've abused your mercy and grace and taken it for granted. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And the best thing to do after that confession to God is to tell somebody else. You don't got to tell everybody, but you should tell somebody. The book of James says you confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed. I mean, it's powerful. And, and, and so the confession always is the first act of a disciple, and it always leads to transformation. Now, I want you to notice the transformation that led these two. They confessed their sin. And then it led to trans- their own transformation. But, but look at how they were transformed. They were transformed through acts of sacrifice. Not only, it's, I mean, it says they, if you look at what it says here, they, they confess their sins, uh, and, and they had been practicing sorcery. They brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. The, the confession of sin led to their transformation. They took all this stuff that was contrary to God, that was just evil, and they burned it. They rid their life of the things that were, that were contrary to God's way, God's law, God's, God's word, and they did so at their own great sacrifice. When it says what they burned was 50,000 drachmas, a drachma is a day's wage. So what they burned was 137 years of salary. That's a lot of money. That's millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that they burned. They took steps of a disciple. They confessed their sin, and it led them to the transformation through sacrifice. I love the fact that the Bible doesn't say and they decided to get rid of their stuff and sell it and use the money for the poor. They didn't even play around with it anymore. They sacrificed income that they could have gained for the sake of their own discipleship. I mean, consider what discipleship meant to these people. Consider the personal loss that they self-imposed as a step of their discipleship and maturity, 137 years' salary. That's a great sacrifice, yeah? See, most people come to faith for what they can get out of it. These came to faith, and their first decision was what do I sacrifice in response to it? Do you understand the difference? Do you understand the difference? And so it begs the question, if I call myself a disciple, what does my sacrifice look like? Is this one of those things that I've come to God for what I can get out of it? Hopefully he makes my life better, my marriage better, my relationships better, my hopes and dreams come true. Or is have we had those serious internal conversations that because of what Christ has done for me on the cross, because of, what, uh, of God's love and his mercy and grace, what's my sacrifice look like? What's it call me to? And then there's this, this, this real interesting phrase here in verse 23, and it was actually used in verse 9 if you read it and paid attention to that. And in verse 23, uh, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. This is what the disciples were called. They were called people of the way. And it it says it first in verse nine, that the Christ followed, the disciples of Jesus were originally called, the movement of Christ was called the way. And the people who followed Jesus were called people of the way. And I love that. I love that. Because what it reminds me is this, is that discipleship is a way of life. Salvation is by faith alone. We must never forget that. But discipleship is a way of living. Salvation has nothing to do with behavior, but discipleship always does. Salvation is not an act of action, but discipleship always is. And according to Acts 19, the way of life of a disciple is service and sacrifice. It doesn't say that there was a disturbance about those who believed in Jesus. It says there was a disturbance about those of the way. It wasn't their way of belief that caused a disturbance. It was their way of life. Because they were disciples, men and women. Salvation is always about belief. But discipleship is always about a way of life. And the thing that turned the world upside down are men and women who had an unstoppable belief that produced an unstoppable way of life, discipleship. There are many, many, many ways to serve the kingdom of God. And there are many, 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 many ways to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. And I'm not going to sit up here and say, it has to look like this and it has to look like that. But I will tell you this. If you want to live the life of a disciple, we will help you understand and find a place to serve the kingdom of God and give you opportunity to sacrifice so that you can move from one who comes to Jesus simply for what you get out of him to one who comes to Jesus and in response to what he's done considers what you may sacrifice for him. I want to address one more thing, and and, and I'm probably going to deal with this more next week because it has a little more to do with Acts 19 than, or sorry, Acts 20 than Acts 19. But life of a disciple is seen in two ways. Service and sacrifice. So let's just recap. The, the life of a disciple is seen in two ways. The first is service, and the second is sacrifice. But those two ways of living, service and sacrifice, are built on a twofold foundation. And that twofold foundation is right doctrine and love. And these two things are seen in Ephesus. And so since Acts 19 is, is the beginning of the church in Ephesus, we see these two foundations being laid in that church. The foundations are right doctrine and love. And those are the foundations that provide the, the bedrock and the, and, and the seed bed through which service and sacrifice will flourish. But those two things have to be in place. When Paul leaves, and we'll see it in Acts 20, he's going to leave the Ephesian church and, and, and he's going to move, he's going to leave them. And, and they have this real tearful goodbye. His time in ministry with them has come to an end. And he warns them uh, in, in, in Acts 20, we have the whole scene of him leaving the Ephesian church. He warns them in Acts 20 be careful of bad doctrine. He says, because there's going to come people that are going to come. Once I leave, there's going to come people. These people are going to start showing up and start teaching us some stupid stuff. And so be careful of bad doctrine. And then later, Paul will write the Ephesian church a letter. It's the letter that Paul, uh, that, that Dennis and James are going to study in their marriage thing. And in that letter to the Ephesian church, we have in our Bibles, it's called the book of Ephesians, in chapters 3 and 5. Those two chapters in the book of Ephesians is all about love. There are two great chapters about love. And so in essence, what we see in the Ephesians church is the two foundations, good doctrine and love. And Paul says, you make sure that these two things stay firm in you because out of them will come your life of discipleship, service and sacrifice. If your doctrine gets wonky, you're going to be guilted into serving. If you stop loving, you're going to stop sacrificing. You understand that? So so you make sure the good doctrine and love is present, and you'll serve out of the right motives, and you'll sacrifice appropriately. The interesting thing is Ephesians is one of those seven churches that Jesus talks about in, in, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 2. And in Revelation 2, if you were to read Revelation 2, you'll read the letter that's written to the Ephesian church. The interesting thing about that letter is this, that it starts in Revelation 2.2, 2, and Jesus commends the Ephesian church for their good doctrine. He says, you, you tested the teachers, you found some to be false, and you kicked them to freak out. Now, he doesn't say it like that. He's, he's, you know, he's Jesus, so he says it really politely. But he says, you tested them, you got rid of them. Good job. You kept your doctrine good. But in verses four and five, look at what he says. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken what? Mm. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and did the things you did at first. They kept their doctrine strong, but they neglected what? They became religious and stopped being disciples. And Jesus tells them, do the things you did at first. What are the things they did at first? What we just looked at in Acts 19. He's calling them back to what we just looked at. return, repentance, serve me and sacrifice for my kingdom. It says, remember how you felt when you first believed, when you loved me more than anything else, when you would give anything for me in my kingdom. Remember what it felt like when you loved me at first. Remember when you first fell in love. He says, How far have you fallen? Do what you did at first. Repent, serve me, and sacrifice. I have said this for I don't know how many years. You cannot change the world on spare time and pocket change. Christians try to do it, and it doesn't work. Disciples are the ones who change the world. So this is the way of the disciple. And this is what the unstoppable church is comprised of. We see it time and time and time again in the pages of Scripture in the first church. And it caused us to stop for a moment and consider ourselves, Yeah. And so the first step of discipleship is to confess sin. And if that's where you are, then you need to embrace that. And you need to confess your sin. To come humbly and submittedly before the Father. Not relying on your goodness, but relying on what Jesus has done on the cross and ask him to forgive your sin and wash you and make you completely pure and clean and righteous before him. And then choose the way of the disciple. Tireless service and costly sacrifice. That's the way of the unstoppable church. That's the way of the unstoppable kingdom. And that's what Jesus has invited us into when he said, follow me. And so I want you to pray with me. And I'm just going to give us both of those opportunities. If you realize that that is the confession of sin, that is your next step. Your right step. I'm going to invite you in the quietness of this moment just simply to say, Father, forgive me. I confess my sin to you, and go ahead and tell him what it is. You know what it is. Tell him what it is. Admit it. The reason you do that is for your own repentance. Father, I'm sorry. I have failed. You know my failure. You know my missteps. You know my sin. I confess it to you, and I repent, and I ask your forgiveness. Tell him, say, Jesus, I thank you that you have already on the cross covered my sin. I accept that. And I ask you to draw near to me and make me new. Wash me and make me new. And I would invite you in this moment to come submittedly before God confessing your sin to him, and then take the next step of a disciple and tell somebody. You don't God tell everybody, but you should tell somebody. It's your act of contrition. It's your act of repentance. God has already offered you forgiveness. Accept it. And then your next step as a disciple is to say, Father, I feel like I'm already tired and I hear Carl saying, we need to tirelessly serve. Give me energy to serve. Help me not be lacking in zeal. Help me to keep my spiritual fervor serving you. I admit I've been a little derelict in that in the past. I don't want to be derelict in it anymore. Help me find a way, figure a way be creative in serving you somehow. But I want to serve. And tell him this too. Say, Father, I, I, I want to sacrifice for your kingdom. And I know the best way to sacrifice, if I want to, is just do it. And so I sacrifice myself, I sacrifice my time, I sacrifice my agenda, I sacrifice my resources, I sacrifice my money, I sacrifice my schedule.
1: I don't want to give you
0: something that costs me nothing, and so I'm going to sacrifice God. Father, I keep coming back to your word that says your eyes range to and fro about the earth to find those whose hearts are fully committed to you, and I pray that you find those hearts here those of us who confess, those of us who, are, who, who desire to be tireless in our service, not because we owe, not, not, not of obligation, but simply out of gratitude, and who look for ways to sacrifice. Father, I thank you for the promise that whatever we give over to you, you will not be indebted to anybody, and you're going to return in manifold measure. Thank you that you are safe to submit to and to sacrifice for, and we do that this morning. Speak to us in whatever whatever way you desire that in us, speak to us in that way, and we'll respond. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. You know, whenever you start hearing a rain, like, uh, you can hear it right now, can't you? I don't know, I'm sure some of your minds go back to the promise of Noah. Uh, when God got so uh, with people, he figured, I'm done. I'm going to start over. Have you ever done a project and it just didn't turn out? He said, I just need to start over. Can you imagine God just want to start over? And there were Noah and his three sons and Noah's wife and their wives and a bunch of animals, dogs mainly, not many cats that he decided to put in an ark. And he says, as frustrated as I am right now, I love you and I love my creation. And I will never, ever pour out my wrath again on the earth like that. Instead, I'm going to pour out my wrath on my son. And every time I hear the rain, I think, thank you, Lord, that you chose not to pour your wrath out on me when I deserved it. But instead, you poured it out on your son. So I love hearing the rain. And I love walking in the rain because to me, it's the promise of God that his wrath is forever poured out on his son, not me. And I know that that rain's gonna end one day and that there's gonna be a beautiful rainbow in its place reminding me of God's promise. I don't know why I thought of that right now. Maybe I just heard the rain and thought I'd share it with you. But friends, just rest easy that God is not mad at any one of us That he's not even disappointed by any one of us. That he knew our faults and our failures when Jesus was on the cross and chose to die for us anyway. So nothing we do is going to surprise him. If he's not surprised by our failures, he's not disappointed in them. He knew they were coming. And all he says is, I love you and I want you to follow me. I'm not mad at you. I'm not going to disown you. I have so much for you if you just trust me. He is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our sacrifice. I don't want any of you leaving this place without understanding that. We're going to sing again. Um, And I know Dave is going to be at the start here, booth. He'll be around. I know one of his roles here is to help you get connected with each other. And with this church. And if you want to take another step in that, I'd encourage you to let us know, let David know. We'd love to walk with you through your next step as a disciple. We good? Yeah. Let's sing. Amen. Well, I think it's fitting this morning we sing a song about.